And I encourage all the rest of us to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Samuel and uh, chapter 13. We are looking at this morning at the government of King Saul. We're, we're in a study at the life of Samuel. We are almost at the end. Next week is actually the last in our series. And then it's time for Palm Sunday. Can you believe the spring has just been flying by? By the way, that's one thing, though. I think if I could have taken daylight savings time and applied it to years, we might just would have skipped past the COVID year and uh, if we could have done that somehow. But here we are the week before Saul became the first king of Israel. He began his reign with all the advantages in his favor, great advantages in his favor. He was born into wealth and privilege. He was the most handsome, the Bible says, the most handsome and attractive man in all of the land, all of the country. He had a commanding presence just by the fact that he was bigger than everybody else, head and shoulders taller than everyone else in the land. He was anointed, set apart by God. He was announced and chosen in the presence of all of the people of Israel by God. God's Spirit came upon him. He had the public support, the public approval of Samuel, who was the outgoing administration. And he had God's Word, God's instructions, everything he needed to know about how to succeed as a king. He had everything in his favor. And Saul reigned as king, the Bible tells us, for 40 years. But sadly, if you know his story, while he starts out well, unfortunately, he doesn't continue well as king. Now, actually, if we were there to evaluate Samuel's reign from a political standpoint, or if we could have listened in to the uh, the news feeds of his day, the news broadcasts, or if we listened to the rich and the famous of his day, we probably would have heard from all of those sources, actually, this man is a great king. First Samuel chapter 14 tells us this in verse 47. It says, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel... He fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Israel was delivered from their enemies on every side. They defeated them all. And if you recall, that's what the Israelites were looking for in a king. That's what they wanted, someone to lead our armies, lead us into battle, and to lead us into victory against our enemies. And that's exactly what they got. And so I think if you talk to most of the folks on the street, if you listen to most of the the newscasts and the Twitter feeds of his day, people would have said he's a great king. But in reality, the only judge who matters is God. And God has a different opinion of Saul as king. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 13 and then skip over to chapter 15 to look at two vignettes, two short stories in the life of 
King Saul's reign as king. Two stories that God has put here for our instruction so that we can look and learn what it is that brought Saul from a place of where the world would say he does great to a place where God says he's a failure, he's a loser. Both of these stories involve Samuel, who has been the focus of our series as we have been looking at the life of Samuel. And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 13. And as the story opens here, uh, there's some difficulties with the first verse in, in the numbers that are there, and I won't get into that. But they're difficult to understand. But likely, this is the second year of Saul's reign as king. So we saw back in chapter 10 and 11 how Saul was, how Saul became king. And now it's two years later. Saul has established, it's, it tells us here, he establishes a standing army up till this point. Whenever there was a battle that needed to be fought, an invader that came or whatever, there was a a call that went out to the nation and it was, it was all, all volunteer army. But now Saul has attached to himself, the, the scripture tells us, valiant men. And whenever he would find a valiant warrior, a valiant man, he would, he would bring him into the group. And he's got a standing army of 3,000. And of those 3,000, Saul takes 2,000 of them, and he, he puts them with him at a military base he sets up in Michmash, right? Kind of in the center of the country, uh, maybe about 20 miles there north of Jerusalem. And then the other 1,000 men he, he puts with his son Jonathan in command of them down in Gibeah, which if you remember back a few weeks ago, Gibeah is Saul's hometown. And so those two cities there in the center of Israel are two military bases with these men. And then sometime after this, now maybe another few weeks, maybe another few months, maybe even another year or or so after this, Jonathan with his, whatever the word would be, troop, his, his group of a thousand men, they take on a Philistine garrison. And uh, they defeat them, and it ignites a war. Now, you may recall, if you've been here in the, in the past weeks, that the Israelites have not been at war with the Philistines for a little over 20 years. It goes back to the time of Samuel when, for about 20 years, the Philistines had been beating up on the Israelites. And... Finally, they got tired of it, and they cried out to God for help. And Samuel came along and said, if you're serious, then put away your idols, worship the Lord only. He led a revival in Israel, and the result of that was that the Philistines attacked them, but then God miraculously defeated the Philistines. And from that point on, the Philistines just went to the background, and for the next 20 years up till now, there has been relative peace. But the Philistines didn't disappear out of the, off the scene. The Philistines were still there. The Philistines still lived over here in the coastland, their main cities. And not only did they live there, they even were among the Israelites. We might think even how it is today with the Jews and the Palestinians. 
They are around each other. They're even amongst each other. And there is relative, tentative peace, but it could ignite at any moment to something. That's what it was with the Philistines. And Jonathan saw fit to take on this garrison of Philistines that were in in an Israelite territory, in an Israelite town, and he defeats them, but it ignites a war. And we pick up the story now in verse 4 of chapter 13. Follow along as I read. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth So the call goes out to the Israelites. We're going into war and uh, come join Saul back at Gilgal. Gilgal you recall, was back over in the Jordan Valley. It's where Saul was coronated as king. It's just a little north of Jericho, right there, in the, again, in the middle of the country. Saul goes to Gilgal, calls for the Israelites to come join because we're going to need more than the standing army. The Philistines, meantime, begin to gather and assemble their army, and they go to where Saul had been having his, his military base at Michmash. As they assemble the Israelites, we discover that they realize it's a massive Philistine army coming and the Israelites melt like ice cream in Texas in the summer. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. It was immediately obvious to the Israelites that they were facing superior forces, superior in numbers, superior in military hardware and technology, and superior in military training. See, over these years, while there has been peace between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Philistines have managed to keep the Israelites basically disarmed. They've kept them from getting well armed. The Philistines, you recall, had the lock on military technology, on metalworking, and they, if the Israelites wanted to get their tools sharpened, they had to go down to the Philistines. If they wanted to buy tools, they had to go to the Philistines. And one of the things the Philistines did in the process of this, besides making money, was also make sure that the Israelites never got weapons, weapons of war. We learn later on, and I won't read the verse, but later on in in verse 22, we discover that out of all of the, the folks who go up to fight against the Philistines, only King Saul and Jonathan have swords. So what do the rest have? Well, sticks, farm instruments. You know, whatever tools they have for their farm become their weapons of war. So the Israelites, it says here, literally start going underground, trying to disappear. They're going into holes, into tombs, into, it says, cisterns, 
that they've carved out of the rocks underneath houses and buildings where they store water. Wherever they can find a hide where they won't be seen, that's where they go. Caves. Those who think that's not enough, they cross the Jordan River and get as far as they can going, going east, getting as far away from the Philistine. People are frightened, terrified. And it says those who are with Saul at Gilgal are trembling. This is not a confident bunch of soldiers we have here. Saul realizes he needs to do something. He needs to take action. He needs to bolster the morale of his people. Hey, we've got a plan. They need to get moving because the longer they wait, the more organized the Philistines get, the less opportunity they have to do any kind of surprise tactics. But Samuel had told him to wait for seven days. Wait for seven days and then Samuel would come and Samuel would offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And so we come to verse 8. He, Saul, waited seven days. And the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. It was a long seven days. Every day you would wake up and there are fewer soldiers in the camp. Even during the day, they're slinking away. And uh, Saul realizes that he's, his forces are dropping rapidly. Finally, the seventh day comes, but Samuel is still not there. Verse 9, So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Samuel went out to meet him and greet him. Two mistakes that we're going to see in these two stories that lead to Saul's demise before God, his failure and his rejection before God. And the first is there is disobedience. And the disobedience is a sinful sacrifice. Saul on his own decides to quit waiting for Samuel. It's day seven. Samuel's supposed to be here. He's not here. And not only does he disobey and quit waiting, Saul decides what I need to do is do what Samuel was going to do. We're waiting here for an offering to the Lord. And he decides to take on the role of priest. The Old Testament law, of course, was very specific. Only certain Ones could be priests. They had to be from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Aaron, the line of Aaron. And that was not Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Nonetheless, Saul decides desperate times call for desperate measures, and he jumps in and does it. No sooner, of course, does he offer the sacrifice than here comes Samuel over the hill. Have you ever been there, done that, when you're so impatient, you jump ahead, you do something you know you're not supposed to do, and then as soon as you do it, (laughs) you realize you just should have waited that much longer. There it is. Well, Samuel arrives and Saul, I think, acts out on the theory, if you're going to sin, sin big. Not only does he act as priest, it says that he went out to greet Samuel. He doesn't go slink away, hide away. He goes out. Here comes Samuel. Hey, Samuel, good to see you. 
Notice what it says. It says, went out to meet him and greet him. The word there for greet in the Hebrew literally means to bless him. And I don't think he's just saying, hey, bless you, Samuel. What the point is here, Saul has taken on the role of priest in offering the sacrifice, and he's going to do what a priest does. The priest goes and blesses people. And now Saul goes to bless the priest. Saul goes to bless the man of God. But he's going, hey, go big or go home. I'm going to do this. Samuel, verse 11, says, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the, the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which with, he, with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Oh, Saul, what have you done? He disobeyed. Notice Saul's first response, though, is, hey, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And it wasn't my fault. It was the, it was the people. The people were deserting. They were running off. We're starting to run out of army here. It's their fault. Then he blames Samuel. It's day seven and you weren't here yet. You didn't tell me I had to wait to the last minute of day seven. Day seven, where were you? And, well, it's more than that. It's the, it's the urgency of the situation. The situation demanded it. The, you're not here, but the Philistines are. And uh, if I hadn't done something, we'd be in big trouble. And after all, we needed God's blessing. So, you know, really the fact is, it's really God's fault. Because we can't go into battle without God's blessing. But here are the Philistines, and they might have gotten here before we had a chance to do this. And so, really, it's kind of God's fault, as well as the Philistines, as well as yours, as well as the people's. How many times do we blame everybody but ourselves? But Saul says, hey, I was forced into this. I didn't want to do this. They made me sin. <laughs> uh, no. Now, it's easy to sit here in, from our perspective in padded pews, in safety, in 21st century America and look back at Saul knowing the end of the story and go, Saul, you're a moron. You know, or whatever we might say. We might... The reality is, though, when we think about it, most of us as we look at the situation can go, wow. You know... I might have done the same thing. If we saw 300,000 soldiers, or didn't see them, they're over the hills, but we knew they were there. And we're sitting here with a couple thousand who are deserting by the minute. And the man of God hasn't shown up. 
How many of us might have just done the same thing? You know, got to do it myself. You want something done right? Got to take care of yourself. We'd be tempted. But his disobedience was costly. A kingdom was lost. God tells Samuel, he said, God would have established your dynasty, your kingdom forever. But now God will not do that. Saul, if you had obeyed God, if you'd been faithful here, God would have established your kingdom forever. But now God is seeking someone after his own heart. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The the one that God is going to choose is a man named David. We're going to meet him next week in next week's story as we wrap up because we're only looking at Samuel's role in this story as he anoints David as the next king. But at this point in time, David probably isn't even born yet. Probably won't be born for another seven to eight years if I have my chronology right. But God knows, God in His infinite omniscience knows David will be a man after His own heart. And He's saving the kingdom for him. Verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the enemy, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Several things to note, but most important is this. Samuel has just told Saul, you were foolish to disobey God. You didn't wait, and then you stepped out of your realm disobeying God's commandments to act as priest, and God has taken away the kingdom from you. What was Saul's response to Samuel? That's it. That was it. Just crickets. Nothing. There is no response. Wouldn't you think there would be some response like, (gasps) (gasps) sorrow? Repentance? Nope. Saul's response is, hey, guys, soldiers, let's go. He blows the whistle. They mount up. They load up their stuff. They head from Gilgal to Gibeah, his hometown, where his son had had the military base. And now they prepare there for war. Here's the thing. Saul's response is nothing. He's made his excuses and now... He has no other thing to say. Saul has zero concern with saying, I have offended God. I have disobeyed Him. He has not one thought to make that right. Saul is too busy thinking about other things. Saul is preoccupied with the situation, with the concerns at hand. There's a war to fight here. And we're losing men by the minute. Let's grab the guys we got and let's go. And we'll figure it out as we go. And we find he's down to 600 men. By the way, if Saul knew his history, he would know from Gideon, that's twice as many as you need. 
you go back and read the story in Judges. It's twice as many as you need. Really, all you need is God on your side. You should be concerned with getting right with God, but Saul isn't. And that exposes the problem with Saul. Disobedience is Saul's sin, but it's not his problem. Saul's problem is that he is that his priorities are wrong. It's not that Saul doesn't believe in God. He does. It's not that Saul doesn't believe that God is God. He does. Saul's problem is that he's focused on a war rather than focused on God. He's focused on what he needs to do rather than focused on his relationship with God. His problem is that he doesn't have a heart for God. Disobedience is his sin, but it's a symptom of the real problem. The real issue is like most of Israel then and like many Christians today, he has no real heart for God. God is fine when God is convenient. God is important when God aligns with my priorities. When God aligns with my desires. When God fits my agenda, I'm all about God. But when God isn't convenient, or when God doesn't fit my plans, we set Him aside and get on my way. That is Saul. May I say it is many believers today, maybe many of us in this room. The symptom of that is disobedience. But the problem is no heart for God. Well, despite Samuel's sin, chapter 14 relates how God graciously and miraculously delivers the nation of Israel from the Philistines. Humanly speaking, they didn't have a chance. But of course, God can do anything. And it's God who wins their battles. And Saul knew that A few years before this, but he's forgotten that already. It's a great story, but we don't have time for that. You can go and read chapter 14 on your own if you want. We're going to chapter 15. Chapter 15 for our second little vignette, our second short story. As chapter 15 opens, time has passed. Likely around 20 years. We don't know exactly when the chronology here, how it works, but probably about 20 years later. And now there's another war to fight. This time, the fight, the battle is with the Amalekites. The Amalekites are people down in the southwestern part of Canaan, down below the Philistines there, and down below uh, the land of Judah. The Amalekites are there, and at this time, when the call goes out to the people, come fight, 210,000 Israelites show up. It's a lot different than the Philistine battle. And there's a great victory for Israel. We won't take the time to read those verses. But while all that's going on, back back at the ranch, as the old Westerns used to say, Samuel hears from God. 
He gets a word from God. We'll pick it up in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel's second mistake here in our second story, his second mistake is a partial obedience. You see, before the war with the Amalekites, God had sent word to Saul through the prophet Samuel. And the word was this, when you go against the Amalekites, spare nothing. Kill them all. But now Samuel is told Saul has disobeyed God. Saul, on his way back home with the army, Saul, they leave the Amalekites and they stop at a place called Carmel. Not Mount Carmel where you'll remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's up in northern Israel. This is down in the southern part of Israel. They stop there and it's interesting to notice on the, that when they stop there, Saul erects a monument to himself. That right there tells you we've got a problem. I heard they dug it up a few years ago and it, it read, Saul, demand. <laughs> or something like that. No, <laughs> You demand, Saul. <laughs> no. Well, then he leaves there and heads back to Gilgal. And Samuel heads to Gilgal. In verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the command of the Lord. Once again, Samuel comes up over the hill. Saul sees him and goes running up. Samuel, blessed be you. Oh, it's good to see you. We did what God told us to do. We did it all. Isn't God awesome? Mom, Dad, don't you just know when the you walk, come home and the kids greet you and they've got big smiles and lots of really kind words and little gifts set out. The, the bigger than kind words, the more jubilant and nice they are and the more things they've done, the more you can be assured they did something really bad while we were gone. That's Saul. Well, again, the instructions were to kill everything, spare nothing. And Samuel gives this classic line in Scripture. As he comes over the hill and Saul comes to greet him, Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? If you did everything that God said, why do I hear critters? None of them are native to Gilgal. I'll just say that. That region of the area, there's nothing native down there. First lesson, partial obedience is full disobedience. That's the point. Samuel is just like, no, you, what do you mean you've done everything? There's creatures. I hear creatures. You didn't kill everything there. And so Saul starts in immediately. He already knows he's guilty, but, and he's probably already been thinking of the excuses. 
Saul said, hey, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the, the people. And he goes on, he's, bottom line is this, they, the people, it, it's them. It's the people that did this. It wasn't me. Secondly, he goes on, it was for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So yeah, we, we killed most of the critters, but the people brought back these, these the best. It's for the Lord. It, it's to offer to God sacrifices. Isn't that awesome? The people were thinking about God. Samuel said to Saul, verse 16, Stop! Let me tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Saul says, okay, speak. Samuel said, though you are a little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king. He's going back to when Saul was, was uh, chosen as king and, and Saul was going, oh, who am I? I'm just the least of everybody. My, we're the smallest tribe. We're nobody. Samuel says, yeah, I know. You're nobody, but God made you king. Guess what, buddy? You're in charge. Don't blame the people. This is on you. Now, God sent you on a mission. Saul, why didn't you obey? Verse 20. But I did. I did obey. I did, I did. Well, yeah, except for that, that king guy. We did bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, back. And, yeah, I know we were supposed to kill everything, everybody, but, but I brought him back. But it was the people. Goes, he immediately goes back to the people. It was the people who brought all the other stuff. I just brought one little king. They brought all these animals. That's his point. Saul says in his excuses, I did obey mostly. Verse 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Classic line, important line. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God cares more about your obedience to Him than He does your religious rituals. He cares more that you obey His Word than that you go to church. Not saying that church is unimportant. Not saying that the sacrifices were unimportant. They were very important or God wouldn't have established them. But... God values obedience more than empty ritual. Is obedience really a big deal? Well, notice what he says, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. He says, rebellion refusing to do what God tells you to do. God says kill everything and you don't kill everything. That's rebellion. And he says that's like witchcraft. It's like sorcery. Why? Well, think about it for a minute. If God says do this and you don't do that, 
you're changing sides. Let's say God is king. Let's say God's the commander. And you, you don't do what the commander says. Guess whose side you have just put yourself on? The enemy's side. And the enemy in this case isn't the Amalekites. The enemy is Satan. When we rebel against God by saying, no, I won't do that, we are putting ourselves on Satan's side. That's why he says it's like sorcery. It's like witchcraft. Secondly, he says presumption. That in the NIV translates that as arrogance. The New American Standard translated as insubordination. It's simply when you say, okay, but I have a better idea. <laughs> you do that in the military, you get court-martialed. You do that with God. And he says, it's like idolatry. Why? Because to say, God, I hear you, but let me do this instead. I think it's better. What we've just done is put ourselves on the throne and said, we know better than you do. We're God. That's idolatry. Does God think obedience is a big deal? The answer is yes. Obedience is important. Disobedience is offensive and evil before God. And so God tells tells Saul again, the kingdom is being taken away. Now by this point in time, David is alive. And as we'll see next week, God's going to anoint him as king. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. And I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon me, pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And we read those words and we go, finally, finally, here's what we've been waiting to hear from Saul all along. Saul says, I am guilty. I have sinned. And he asks for forgiveness. Pardon my sin. And he says, I want to go worship God. We go, all right. Good. So what we have is Saul confesses. There's confession. But Samuel's response surprises us. Verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul, that's fine that you're sorry. It's fine that you are confessing your sin here, but it's too late. Does that shock you? It's too late. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs his robe to try to stop him and the robe tears in his hands. And Samuel says, just like that, God has torn the kingdom from you. Again, it's too late. He's giving it to someone, he says, better than you. And then Saul begs, look at verse 30. He said, I have sinned 
Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Two things to note in these few lines in this little verse which are telling, which explain why Samuel said a few moments ago why God said it's too late. Something that tells us that despite Saul's words, absolutely nothing has changed. He says the right words, forgive me. He says the right words, I have sinned. He says the right words, I want to worship God. But the reality is, inside, nothing has changed in Saul. How do we know that from just this? Two things. Do you notice, why is it that Saul is so intent on getting Samuel to come back with him? What does he say? Come back with me. He didn't say it the first time, but he says it now. It's a little slip of the tongue. Come back and honor me in front of the elders, the leaders of Israel, and in front of the people. Is Saul really concerned about getting right with God? What is Saul concerned about? His reputation. He's concerned with how people view him. Samuel, if you don't come back with me, people are going to know there's a rift here that that you're walking away and that means God is rejecting me and I'm going to look bad. He's concerned again about the wrong thing. Then notice one more little important thing he says. He says it here and he said it twice earlier in this chapter. And if you're astute, you noticed it. Saul here refers to Go, let's go, that I may bow before the Lord. What's the next word? Your God. Notice what he doesn't say. Before the Lord, our God. Twice in this chapter before this, he said the same thing. You see, Saul instinctively knows he has no relationship no heart with God, no heart for God. Samuel, we're going to go pray to your God. Worship your God. How sad. Well, there's the story. Wrapping it up very quickly here. We see that obedience mattered to God back here with King Saul, king over God's people. It was a big deal. And when when God's king disobeyed, it was a big deal. And it cost Saul greatly. And that's fine for King Saul. And that's fine for way back then, but is obedience to God a big deal now for you and for me in 21st century America? To answer that, I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm going to go to the night before Jesus was crucified on the cross. There in the upper room with the disciples. John chapter 14, chapter 15. Jesus says this, John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you turn it around backwards, if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. A few verses later, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Hmm. A couple verses later, verse 23, John 14, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Skip to the next chapter, John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, brothers and sisters, if we do not obey Him, we miss out on all sorts of blessings God has desired for us. Just as Saul, because of his disobedience, missed out on great blessing God desired for him. If we are not, if you are not experiencing the love of Christ in your life, if you are not experiencing the grace and the presence and the power and the joy of Christ in your life. From these words from Jesus, may I suggest the first place to look is to look in the mirror, to examine yourself and say, am I living in obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ? Because He says, if you keep My commandments, My joy will... I've given these so your joy may be full. So you may have My joy. If you keep my commandments, you will live in my love. My Father loves you and I love you. If you keep my commandments, I will manifest myself to you. You will know my presence there with you. John Calvin put it this way. Great reformer, he said, we cannot rely on God's promise without obeying His commands. If you want to experience the promises of God, we need to obey His commands. Please don't misunderstand anything I'm saying here or that the Scripture is saying. We, we do not by our obedience, we cannot by our obedience earn heaven. We cannot by our obedience to commands earn forgiveness from sin. We cannot by obedience of, to commands escape the punishment of hell. The Bible is very clear. We can only receive those things by God's grace through faith and trusting Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not, of, not by works, so that no one can boast. We receive those by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never trusted Him as your Savior, I encourage you even today, right where you are, you can do that simply by saying, God, I realize I'm a sinner. Jesus paid the price for my sin. I trust Him. I believe in Him as my Savior. We are not saved by works of obedience. But God intends for those who are saved to live lives of obedience. 
The old preacher from a century ago, A.W. Tozier, said it well. To escape the error of salvation by works, which many folks have gone off that deep end trying to think, somehow I can save myself by doing good works, by obeying commands. To escape that error, we have gone to another. We have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. And there is no such thing. Salvation by God's grace. Grace always leads us to obedience. That's what Paul says in Romans. After talking about grace, he says, So, shall we sin now that we have grace? (laughs) No! The cry, no. It never be. But unfortunately, I think that Tozier is right. And I think in modern, the modern America church, modern American church is weak. It is ineffectual because by and large, we have gone the way of Saul. By and large, we are concerned about so many things except the one thing we should be most concerned about. We don't have a priority to love and to follow, to obey our Savior. Consequently, we obey God selectively. We pat ourselves on the back. I haven't murdered anybody. I didn't rob a bank. You know, didn't commit adultery. Didn't uh, whatever, you know. Yeah, there's just a little lying here and there, a little gossip here and there, a little hatred over here. No, I don't love my neighbor as myself. No, I don't love my wife as Christ loved the church. No, I don't honor, respect my husband. No, we don't honor our parents. But those are just the little things. We haven't murdered anybody. Selective obedience, partial obedience, that's what Saul did. And it has weakened us as the church. It has caused us to move and to miss, I should say, out on great blessings that God designs and desires for us. Father, thank You for Your Word. It's painfully clear this morning as it exposes our failures. Saul is here for an example for us, but we are not better than he. We likewise fall into the same temptations and the same sins. What good news it is, as we look at David, the man after God's own heart, we we won't see his story, but what we see is a man who fails greatly many times. The difference between the two is not that they fail, but it's what they do otherwise. David confesses, repents, and seeks to follow you with all of his heart. Saul never does. Lord, may we be like David, not like Saul. May we say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm available. I want to follow you with all I am. This we ask in Jesus' name.